This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go... I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went and when I was off on my vacation, I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose of all movies to watch a three and a half hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, – we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be that you are always um charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but it, you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, so be open and willing to, to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I, I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people. And he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of, of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the, at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they, they had a, a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well. And I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa – and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was. And, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa. Um, and it's just a basic, it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I do a lot of coaching of couples, and I sit down. We do what we can to help them learn to connect and stay connected once they're married. And a lot of people think it should just be easier than it than it really is. It, I mean, true love means it should just come easier, right? Well, no, not always. 
it's hard. And one area that I found um, a lot of people are struggling with is they want to have a hobby or they do have a hobby and they can't they don't necessarily share it with their partner. Uh, it might be easy to love your husband's fishing when you're dating your boyfriend and you're loving each other and you, it's the cutest thing because he wants to go fishing and you want to fish with him because you're dating and it's exciting and you can go out there and while you're out there fishing, you're talking and it's so fun. But that doesn't always last. Very few couples I know are sharing the hobbies that uh, that they that they could be sharing in life. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Maybe one way to find um, some time to be together is if you could find a way to to leverage your hobbies, your toys, your leisure time in a way that uh, you could actually do some fun stuff together. For example, here's some rules for you. Remember, it takes energy to make passion, right? So if your marriage is running out of passion, then you got to have energy. And apparently, as we learned this last weekend, there's a lot of people using Pokemon Go as a as a great partner building activity. My daughter, my son-in-law rode their bikes with their baby in tow and went all over their town playing a silly little game together. But um, what it did is it created some energy. It created some passion. They were sharing something. I have family that play tennis every you know day, every week together and uh, as a couple, and it creates some energy. It allows them to not only go do what they both love to do, but to do it together. They can play against other teams. It creates some uh, fun teams um, activities, but also dating opportunities. So if you want some more energy or more passion in your marriage, then you got to figure out a way to invest energy together. Another thing you can do is to do what you can do together, not what you can't. Um, as is obvious, right? At some point, you're going to have to give your limited energy on something. So the dilemma is one person might be a better bicyclist than the other. So honestly, I don't want to ride with you because you ride too fast or you ride too slow. And then we spend our entire time fighting about what we can't do. But maybe there are ways that we can find something that we can do together. Maybe we can't necessarily do our long ride of our bicycles together, but we can go on a bike ride, a short bike ride every every couple days. There might be something that um, you like that I like. It might simply be that you, you may not love being outdoors and camping but maybe we rent a trailer and you stay in the trailer and we, we go camping via trailer instead of roughing it out in the out in the backwoods. Another goal or another tool that might help us to bridge our hobbies so that we can have some shared hobbies together is um, make up new things together. Make your marriage not be just what it's always been, but maybe there's something that you can do together that you've never done. So go try some new things. Maybe it's trying new restaurants every week. Maybe it's something about, uh, you know, going out um, and and trying a, a club or a dancing activity or a golf club program or a, I mean, there's so many opportunities in this crazy country we live in. There's, are you telling me there's nothing you two can't go find that you'd both be willing to try? It also might mean you may need to leave some of the, you know, your must-nots aside. If you're somebody that says, I will never go hunting, you might want to set that aside. My rule is try everything twice, at least twice. Try it. Just try it. If it's legal, if it's ethical, if it's moral, try it. Remember, you also don't need to like it to do it. 
um, there's a lot of things in our lives we don't like doing, but they're important to do. And that is just as true in our marriages. I may not love doing some of the things my wife loves to do, but I I can still like it because I'm with her. And I can go find some benefit, if even just the benefit is making our marriage better. You don't have to love everything, folks, in life to make it worthwhile. Anyway, that's a few tips for you to help you uh, bridge some of your hobbies, your habits, your goals with your partner. Got to start somewhere. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that? Right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness, which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up? I call it spirit. What, or is it your spirit? What, what, which, what do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world, I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy, sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you, um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up, to me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into – little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are, you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if, if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. 
little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Social media is something we cannot avoid. It's part of our world now. And Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress for its part in the Cambridge Analytics leak of information. Would government regulation solve these problems? Well, here to speak with us today is Paul Levinson, a professor of communications at Fordham University in New York. He also appears regularly on CNN and MSNBC, Fox News, the Discovery Channel. He's out there uh, trying to to just inform and educate all of us on what's going on in um, in our social media world and and in the communication world overall. Dr. Paul Levinson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Talk to us. Uh, I mean, about this the the Cambridge Analytics is a it's a really complicated thing, but in the end, um, through social media sources, they were able to access a lot of data, a lot of information about a lot of us, and because of that, Congress has now decided, okay, it's going to maybe start regulating our social media. But you think this may not be a great idea? I think it's a terrible idea, and here is why. Uh, the only thing that keeps a democracy free, at least if you look uh, back on history, is media and journalism and reporting and all kinds of communication, even filmmaking, that is not controlled by government. Mm. And that's why our founding fathers, or at least some of our founding fathers, in particular Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, most of those people were from Virginia. In fact, all three of those were. Mm. But others joined them. That's why they put the First Amendment into the Bill of Rights. It's not the Tenth Amendment, it's not the Fifth, it's not even the Second Amendment. They thought this was so important. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or press that they made it first and foremost. And as a matter of fact, there was a lot of debate back then about should we have such a strong federal government? Is this going to endanger the liberty that people fought so hard to get in the Revolutionary War. And uh, the Bill of Rights in general, and the First Amendment in particular, were the safeguards that were put in at the very founding of our nation to do everything possible to make sure the government didn't get too powerful. Hmm. Now, how do we – so if the federal government doesn't step in to to create some of these protections, then um, are, are we just to trust that the social media groups will? Yes, and that's not such a strange thing. I mean, if you think about business in general, and it's certainly the case that social media are a kind of business. But if you think about any business, it succeeds if people are happy with it, if people are comfortable with the product. It doesn't succeed if people are unhappy with it. So clearly, I think it's it's also not a very good thing. In fact, I would be furious if my personal information were 
you know, pilfered off Facebook or any uh, other social site. But the best way of dealing with that is the the users of Facebook should let Facebook know they don't want to have their information uh, publicly available like that on a system that's available to people who can hack it or even get on there legally. It's not such a complicated thing. The other point here that's worth making is if you watch that uh, testimony, uh, Zuckerberg's testimony and the questions that were asked of him, uh, it's clear to me that uh, I'm a college professor. The average student in any one of my classes knows far more about (laughs) social media than than senators and uh, people in Congress. So you're asking people who are fundamentally ignorant of social media to go in and regulate social media that's a prescription for serious problems <laughs> it's true and and well and facebook already they their market cap took a big hit i mean they they lost a lot of money because of this scandal so it is it is kind of self-regulating in that they're losing people and they're losing uh i mean a lot of a lot of big named uh like um just big name people and and companies and corporations are pulling away from Facebook, or at least saying, "I don't want my information out there." Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly the point. And look, another aspect of this is we have a person who's president of the United States, uh, and a day doesn't go by in which he doesn't lash out at the media. He's even said he thinks too much attention is paid to the First Amendment. He thinks that there should be some federal regulations, not having to do with Facebook, but just the media in general, because any news that's unwelcome to this president, he denounces as fake news and, and says something needs to be done about it. So especially with someone like that in office, this is the worst possible time to introduce federal regulation into uh, social media. That's true. I mean, even if you loved uh, President Trump today, you may not love the next one. You didn't maybe love Obama. And so to turn this power over is a is a very big deal. Is it? I mean, I guess too. We the the founding fathers probably never could have imagined um, some of these social media sites or some of the the ways that the press would change, the ways that media would change. Um, but you're still saying overall, it be we need to be very slow to 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 impede uh, freedom of speech in any way, shape, or form. That's exactly right. Look, the only kinds of communication that people had back in the days when our country was founded were speech, handwritten letters, and the press. So not only were there no social media, there were no electronic media. There was no radio, no television, right. no motion pictures. And, you know, throughout history, the Supreme Court has made some really dumb decisions. For example, in 1915, there's a famous case, Mutual Film Company versus the State of Ohio, in which then the Supreme Court ruled that motion pictures were not protected by the First Amendment because they weren't really any kind of political communication, because no political documentaries had been made back then. And they said it's just a form of entertainment. The government can and should regulated. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court saw the era of its ways. But saying that social media somehow, you know, are not part of the press, 
really overlooks the fact that uh, millions and millions of Americans, and it's only increasing, not decreasing, get their news from Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, some people may not like that, but that's the reality. You know, if you're 15 years old, if you're 20 years old, if you're 25 years old, if you're 30 years old, you don't watch the evening news. Uh, you know, even I don't watch the evening news right. anymore. I'm that much older. But, you know, these are vital media. They give information to us all the time. Yes, there's, they make mistakes, but the best way of dealing with these areas is encouraging the media themselves to stay on top of it. Well, and I guess one thing you could do as legislators, you don't have to necessarily go start um, creating legislation to control the media, but you could just hold hearings. Just their holding of hearings kept this in the news a lot longer than Zuckerberg would have wanted it to be. Yes, I think that's a very good idea. And look, you know, Facebook uh, was pretty arrogant, uh, and they've been arrogant throughout their history. And, you know, when they were first, uh, you, you know, put in the spotlight because people were saying, hey, you know, there was a lot of false and fake news stories, not what Trump considers fake news stories, which is anything he doesn't like, but real fake news stories. Yeah. You know, like Hillary Clinton running a child predation uh, operation right. in a pizza parlor in Washington. You know, Facebook's first response is, hey, what do you want from us? We're just a place where people come on and talk to their friends. And that kind of arrogance hurt Facebook. Uh, but I think Facebook has learned its lesson. And part of the reason it's learned its lesson is indeed because of these here. So the hearings are great. Regulation is not. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Levinson, who's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. And uh, he he's a, a major um, guest that appears on many of the, the big uh, talk shows and talk uh, stations. Um, Paul, is, is there a difference, though, and you tell me, you're the expert, of speech and data management and data mining and – um, the rights that a lot of us have with our data to keep our data free, um, is, is that a different component to the, the other um, discussions we're having about social media? They are different to some extent, and that's why this is so complicated. Uh, if somebody is standing up talking somewhere and some police officer comes over or an FBI person comes over and says, you can't talk, that's a clear-cut case of interfering with someone's communication. If a newspaper is shut down, that's a clear-cut case. Mm. Basically, regulating social media so that they don't make their data so publicly available, I would agree is not such a clear-cut case. But the problem is when you bring in the government to regulate any communication system in any way, History has shown that once it gets its foot in the door, it stays and it gets more and more obtrusive. And, and here's, unfortunately, an example that we're still seeing the consequences of. The Federal Communications Commission was created back in the 1930s to do one thing, to make sure that radio stations didn't broadcast in frequencies that were so close to each other that they interfered with each other and drowned each other out. Mm. Because back in the 1930s, they didn't even have FM radio. 
And, you know, we've all experienced this. If you've listened to the radio in our car, you know, before there was satellite radio, you drive from one city to another, and a, another radio station starts coming in, and for a brief period of time you can't hear any radio yeah. station. So this is what the FCC was created to do. And not only that, it was written into the Federal Communications Act that the uh, FCC should not consider the content of radio stations when it gives licenses to radio stations. Well... Unsurprisingly, within a few years, that's exactly what the FCC started doing. And, you know, I'm sure uh, most of the listeners are aware of what happened when Janet Jackson uh, right. had a wardrobe right. malfunction. Right. CBS was fined millions of dollars for that. That has nothing to do with frequencies and, you know, whether you're 540 or 545, you know, on, on the dial. And... This, unfortunately, is what happens when the government gets involved. It can't help itself. It starts doing things that even if the law says it's not supposed to do it, even if the statute says don't do it, they do it anyway. So that's really, you know, uh, an example that we all should keep in mind. Any time anyone says, well, okay, we're not going to censor Facebook, but, yeah, we need the government to come in and regulate Facebook in some way. Is 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 it the same thing? I thought also that this was because the airwaves were owned by the people and they were a shared resource, even supported in some ways by the government. So it was a, sh- a shared asset. But is, is there already a legal precedence that the Internet is something that they can control? Well, this uh, public airways thing I always thought was nonsense uh, anyway. Uh, it is true that everyone owns the air, but, uh, you know, electromagnetic carrier waves were never part of government. They were never part of the people. They were independent corporations uh. that actually built the equipment and, and sent out uh, the waves. And the argument that, hey, the government needs to regulate radio and television because they're broadcast over the public airwaves. That was brought in later to justify the kind of content regulation that uh, I was just talking about. But um, as far as uh, anything that's not on the public airwaves, there is already a precedent that the government needs to keep its hands off cable operations precisely because they they don't have anything to do with broadcasting mm. per se and the same is true with streaming uh, on Netflix Amazon Hulu and so forth and if anything the internet is much closer to those streaming stations than it is to a uh, to a broadcast operation interesting yeah um, what do you think about this idea now we're saying we're hearing from others that you know, the Internet is a right. Everybody in the world has the right to access the Internet. And so some governments might even be stepping in to facilitate that. Uh, is, is that. Is that also too much government intrusion into something like the web? Well, I have no problem if the government does things like build better ways that people's smartphones can operate you know so even here in new york for example uh when i'm driving from my home to where i teach at fordham university uh there's a big uh, roadway it's called the sprain brook parkway and i'm still amazed that here in 2018 
I'm driving down the parkway, and there's like about a three-minute, you know, period of time <laughs> when basically <laughs> you're I, I, in I no man land. Exactly. So, it, it, you know, if we're talking about the government uh, anywhere in the world improving <laughs> the infrastructure, yeah. hey, I'm all for it, yes. Yeah. But again, that's not r- regulating in any way. You know, the, if the government wants to give money to something, if the government wants to help people, uh, uh, you know, get online, use the Internet, that, that's, that's fine and wonderful. What I, I guess the, then the key to this would be, if we want to keep government out, then we as buyers, we have to be more aware. We have to we have to have our heads on a little bit stronger and, and understand and maybe be a little more involved. That's absolutely right. And you have to know yourself. You have to know why you're on a particular system, why you're using it. So, you know, I said before that I would be very unhappy, you know, if somebody took my data. But you want to know the truth? For the most part, I wouldn't be unhappy because if you look at my Facebook page, you see the titles of my books, you know, announcements of various things that I'm doing, classes that I'm teaching. I don't care if anybody knows about that. Yes. I don't care if Cambridge Analytica takes that data and sells it. I don't know who they would sell it to, but hey, maybe uh, you know, I'm also a science fiction author. Maybe somebody will be interested in reading one of my novels that wouldn't have known about it beforehand. So, you know, in my case, uh, honestly, I don't care all that much about that. But but I do recognize that there are a lot of people, including in my own family. You know, my wife feels strongly. Hey, she wouldn't want. You know, uh, it, not that there's any yeah. personal information, but she feels you know she wants her privacy. So, yes, I think each person has to know what they want in their experience, and the more that they're in touch with their own goals and using social media, the happier they'll be. Yeah, great stuff, Dr. Paul Levinson. Thank you so much for your time and your insights into uh, government and social media. Again, Dr. Paul Levinson is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. Um, uh, you can go uh, Google him, go find out more information about his books, his work, really uh, doing what he can, I think, for all of us to make sure that we we can be a little bit safer and, and more realistic about what's going on in this battle over social media. Don't just assume that the government steps in and and makes everything, uh, you know, tries to minimize their impact. A lot of times government might maximize their impact. Anyway, we'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, there's when something goes wrong, it's usually when we start hearing everyone complaining about it, right? Uh, where were all the complaints before the Cambridge Analytica problem? Some people were complaining, and those were the people that were probably most informed, um, those on the cutting edge of the whole issue. But uh, but he he makes a great point. Um, Dr. Levinson makes a great point that be careful in in being really quick to regulate, especially letting the government regulate, because, you know, when you let the camel's nose in under the tent, it's coming in. Um, And remember that regardless of your uh, politic, you you may you got to be careful because. Anybody could put their person in there and and start doing what they need to do. Um, 
Remember some with President Trump, the idea about PBS and Sesame Street and cut the funding to children, um, television and network and all of these issues that started to come up. It's, um, you know, this is a big deal. And if everyone were just neutral and out for the best interest of the whole country, that would be great. But sometimes politics gets in the way and uh, decisions are made by people that don't necessarily understand the whole depth of the issue. So what do you do? Do you, I guess you, you got You can just complain about it. You can just whine about your lack of freedom. Or there are some other things that you might do. And I wanted to throw some of these other ideas out there so that maybe you could become a change agent instead of just a, you know, a pain in the neck um, and a complainer. One thing we could all do is try to understand the issue better. So instead of complaining about what's going on with social media, um, we could start actually using that same energy to understand the deeper pain behind the issue. Identify what's really going on, uh, understand it, research it. Don't just research it from your favorite three sites that you always go to. Dig deeper, dig wider, and try to understand the issue at a completely different level. And then see what that does to you. By gathering more and more information, do you do you see it as a bigger problem or do you see it as, you know, a, a, a more balanced solution? Maybe one of the reasons why Dr. Levinson is saying hold back on allowing government to intervene is because in all of his research, he's seen a lot of history where government intervention hasn't made it better. Uh, another way we can handle our complaints or our fears or our insecurities is reframe the issue. So instead of just complaining about the problem uh, that others might be creating for you or this Internet or the whatever social media might complain for you, reframe the issue um, and, and alter the way that you actually see the problem. Sometimes the biggest problem we face is actually how we're seeing the problem. Um, reframe the, the, the issue as maybe not necessarily a social media issue, but reframe it as Dr. Levinson did as a, as a you know, First Amendment rights issue. That, so now you're going to allow the government to start saying who and what social media companies can exist and, and who can't exist. Be careful uh, how you see it also. Be careful how you frame it. Change it. Instead of complaining and hoping for change, you could actually start working immediately to create the change that you seek. Go start implementing the changes that you've learned about, the changes. Go fight for it. Go run for office. Go become an advocate for the issue and fight and and start becoming a leader in the issue so you can at least um, influence it. There's nothing worse than the pains of having a problem that you can't influence, right? So improve your influence. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, like I'm going to be able to change it. Well, no, like, yeah, you could. I mean, there's many examples in our world where one person made a change, decided to take on an issue, and uh, many a Nobel Peace Prize has been won by these people. Many a, a movement has started by just the one person, but they didn't do it willy-nilly. They didn't do it uninformed. They were informed. They saw the need, and they took on the calling to go be the change agent and become the change. Or last but not least, just accept what it is. Accept it. You know, Accept this is how life works and figure out how you're going to live your life in relation to it. Uh, like manage your own data. Make sure you're not overextending. Get off social media sites that 
you don't need to be on. Go in and change all of your passcodes, passwords, and other information. Um, Minimize what you put online. Maximize uh, the messaging you want to be out there. I mean, there's a lot of things you still can do by just accepting the way this is the way the system goes and and, uh, living that system the way you can live it, right? So you've, you've got a few choices. Instead of just complaining, you can also understand it, reframe it, change it, or, ex- or accept it, and become the change that this uh, world and country needs. Anyway, just some ideas to give you a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. No matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. On the other hand, we hear our siblings, children, and spouse complain, and suddenly we feel ourselves getting defensive or completely tuned out. Uh, so how do we complain so that people will actually listen? And and more than that, how can our voice uh, and how can we voice our concerns to create a positive change in the world Tina Gilbertson is a psychotherapist in the private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago to talk to us about her article, How to Complain So People Will Listen. We uh, started the interview talking about, I asked her actually, how do, you, uh, how do I complain to people without turning them off? Right. Well, yeah, complaining is sort of an unattractive Thing. I think we are all kind of on the same page about that. Like nobody likes a complainer. Right. We don't want to be a complainer, and it's just really hard though, because sometimes we need to. We do need to speak up. Yeah. You know about it, whether it's in a relationship or at work, we need to speak up about stuff. Um, the problem is that you know, as as is as with most kind of relational issues between us humans, things like emotions get in the way, and uh, we don't always handle those. We don't always know how to handle those in a way that um, is effective and uh, allows everybody to to have their uh, their own feelings and and so on. So I think um, whether you're complaining at home or at work, there are a couple of um, elements to an effective complaint that doesn't yeah. turn people off. Well, and, and complaint. Um, it, it is. It, it is not just even the word. It's like, okay, I want. Here's our complaint box. Yeah, right. So it's almost like we need a better word, huh? We have to invent a better word than complaint. Totally. Of course, you know, you can go the other way and say, I have something to share with you. Mm-hmm. you yeah, know, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to let you know that your voice drives me crazy. Yeah, just to share. <laughs> um, That's interesting. So, what are what are some of the tools that we could use for the healthy complaint? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to own the fact that you're complaining and Mm. own the feelings that you're having that are bringing you to complain. So too often the way we complain, and by the way, I am the worst. I'm not an expert at doing this in my own life. It's kind of an open secret that we teach what we need to learn. Absolutely. You know, I love talking about this because I... And this is something that I work on myself. It's just too easy to point to someone else's behavior and say, that's not cool. So, and of course, that just creates defensiveness. Yeah. It is. But see, some people don't. Some people, they feel, that's why I guess in a way, complaining is healthy 
um, because if I don't do something with the feelings, if I just bury them and just go beat you up in my head, that's not going to help. But so I've got to just figure out how to share them with the person that needs to hear them. You're yeah. you're saying, but own the fact that this is a complaint. Here it comes. I'm, I'm... Yeah, and and by the way, if you do, if if we do bottle these things up because we don't know that we have a right to complain, right? Then we then we end up with a whole bunch of resentment, and we get Mount Vesuvius. Yeah. That eventually explodes, and then it's really ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so true. Yeah, then it's just, yeah. And the real issue is, you know, these are feelings that I haven't been able to share. Right. And they've just built up and built up, and they have a real force behind them then. And then, then it's almost impossible to say, even if you say the perfect words at that point, it's so loaded. You know, your emotions are just so there, and people can feel how, how intense an experience you're having. Mm, totally. So, so it's true. kind of heavy. But uh, so, you know, the way you own a complaint is by making I statements. You know, I don't like it when this happens or um, um, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't appreciate it rather than you're being rude, you're being thoughtless, you're insensitive. Yeah. Is it like so I can give some context. So when we're in a meeting and I'm talking to my boss, when we're in a meeting and you were bringing up this and this. It makes I, – I feel this and then I tell my feelings I mean, because I, I kind of need to give them some context, right? For sure. And the, the little bit of what's different at work between work and home is at home or with friends, you know, within your personal relationships, you can have a reasonable expectation that that person has a vested interest in caring for your feelings. Sure, yeah. Taking actions to, to protect your emotional bond. And at work, it's – you don't you don't really you can't really expect that to be a priority for your coworkers. I mean, within reason you have to you can expect people to treat you with dignity at work, but um for you to say I feel unloved when no one makes coffee in the break room, <laughs> you know, that's not as appropriate yeah. as it as it might be at home. Yeah, you're probably going to be hazed if yeah, you do that. Exactly. <laughs> right. They'll tie so, you up somewhere. Yeah, with a boss or with a coworker you really just want to, and this is the second thing I would say besides own it, is point to very specific behaviors or specific action, make a specific actionable request. So, um, like, you know, when when you're yelling at me, it's hard for me to concentrate on what you're saying. Hmm. Rather than I feel hurt when you yell at me. Yeah, or what we might normally do is just go in there and say, you're rude. Right. And then the person can argue with, you know, oh, I'm not. No, I'm not. Nine out of ten people think I'm wonderful. That's I know. Right. So that's and why you have to get state. specific. huh? But if you if you take ownership and you make I statements, people can't really debate as easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't. They can't say your feelings are dumb. I mean, they can. Well, they can. But yeah, they can. But <laughs> yeah, they it, can. it's still your feelings. It's you're just. But if you're specific to a situation, I'm not saying. I'm not throwing out this statement that you're just a bad person. I'm saying when you yell at me in those meetings, I feel attacked. I feel hurt. Yeah, and and if there's a, you know, if it's if it's elevated to the level of like harassment where it's totally uncool for the person to be doing that, I think it's reasonable to ask them not to. You know, please don't do that. Yeah. Uh please don't make comments about my body. I don't like that. That's great. And that yeah. really is. I mean, because you have that right. Absolutely. 
and especially in that business setting. And you, I mean, and, and we also need in our personal lives those boundaries set, right? So for sure, I need you. To, I please don't do that. I won't. I can't tolerate that. Yeah, and how how often do you hear somebody say something like that? Like never, right? Yeah, it's right. A weird. It feels weird to say, and it also feels weird to hear somebody speak that nakedly about this is my need. Mm-hmm. This is what you did. I don't like it. Please don't do it. That simple. That's and you're. What's cool about it is, um, if you kind of dissect it like we're doing, it's not. You're not trying to be abrasive. You're not trying to cause a fight. You're giving feedback. You're 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 basically saying this specific situation creates this feeling for me, mm-hmm. and then here's my request. Exactly. There's a there's a request. Yeah, you know, and you want the request. Why? Like, why do you want it? Like a specific request. Um, so the person knows what to do. There's no point in complaining if there's if there's not an actionable request. What are they supposed to do? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, if if there isn't a specific request, then you can say, you know, I just need to vent about something. Mm-hmm. But if what you're venting about is you don't like their personality, then you're kind of at a stalemate. Yeah. Well, many times in marriage, you hear people saying, "Well, so what do you want me to do?" It's like they don't. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. You're just complaining. You're here to just complain. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to vent. Well, well actually, you know what? I think the answer to that question. So, what do you want me to do? Especially mm-hmm. in a married couple, is often. And I'm, in my mind, it goes right to, that's the man talking. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Fix, I want to fix this. I want to get this yeah, done. Yeah, I w- let's... Tell me what to do. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. If he wants to smooth things over. And maybe the woman doesn't even realize that what she wants is just for him to acknowledge that feeling. Yeah. To know how she feels and to care that she feels that way. Interesting. See, and we'd rather, I guess it kind of goes to maybe the way that we tend to the man might more traditionally communicate is we're not going to communicate about wanting to be validated in my feelings per se, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you when I need something done and I just kind of need you to do it. Just and do you know it. What? There's, there's some value in that for women in particular, because we are maybe a little, some of us are a little too likely to say, you know, other people's husbands help with the dishes <laughs> exactly. instead of yeah. making a request. Yeah. Well, but if you love me, you just do dishes naturally. Oh, yeah. you, would, you would realize how hard I work and you would want to help. That's right. And if I have to ask you, then it doesn't count. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But if I mean, really, everybody's got – well, if, if you love me, we'd touch more. Well, I would touch if you do the dishes. Well, I'd do the right. dishes if you touched. You oy, first. Oy, oy. No, you first. <laughs> yeah. And then we just sit there and look at each other. This Mad. is why I don't do couples counseling anymore. I know. You got tired of it, didn't you? Well, it's just somebody's got to give first. Yeah. And when you've got two people who are who are who have needs, it's like meet my need. No, you meet my need first. Well, I'll meet your need when you meet. Oh. I can't even. It's like a tongue twister. It is. It's like a bunch of twelve or not even twelve year olds. It's like a bunch of five year olds fighting over who pushed whose Legos over. I do think we uh, revert to childhood a lot around these issues of, of times when we need to complain. I think we feel powerless. A lot of us feel like maybe we're not allowed to complain. Yeah. Or, or, and we don't know how to do it effectively. So by, by being able, and so far you've taught us, if we, if we want to complain so people will, will be more able to hear uh, or listen to it, we would basically go in, maybe ask for our time. Can I just talk to you about something? Exactly. Well done, yeah. And then, and then, you know, you know, kind of give the context in our meeting today. Yep. You brought up this and this, and then use I statements, and I and and I made me feel this. I felt pressure. I felt whatever. I felt embarrassed. I felt humiliated. Mm -hmm. And then, 
own your feelings. I know they're mine. I mean, I know you, that probably wasn't your intention. And I'd like you in the future that you don't call me out like that. Right. Yeah, and depending on the work setting, you may not want to get too specific about about your feelings. That's true, huh? Yeah. It, it may be enough at work to say, that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's I great. I'm comfortable with that. Again, that was Tina Gilbertson, author of the book uh, Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. Doing what we can on the show to give you the tools you need to be a healthy complainer. If you're going to complain, let's do it in a in a healthier way. And really, let's try to just uh, lift the world by lifting our conversations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. If you haven't learned this yet, apparently... There's, there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, they could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down, <laughs> beat you up. But if you can't work with people then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a uh, a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014. And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe, maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. The hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every. She follows him everywhere. She's like just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm, yeah. That's really good. <sighs> what should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? <laughs> okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. Well, at least a volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother, does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chicken. Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they, it seems like it'd have a hard thing, it'd be hard to, like, stay on the boat for that little bird. All I need to do is shout Monique, and she will come to me. She's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose if you were going to take a pet around the world with you? 
What would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. <sighs> I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you either, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circle, circumnavigating the world with a hen. Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from doing that. People matter. And so people's skills matter. We probably, in fact, I believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others, to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest. Instead, I think we're here to, to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so, because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house, I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I, I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person, how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner, what are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively. And then get on it. Go look up something on psychology today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show for heaven's sakes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And when I work with clients and couples, I cannot tell you. It's it's almost every single couple. They, they just don't believe that uh, they can do that they could make a change themselves in themselves and make a change in their relationship by themselves but one of my favorite quotes is two heads are better than one and one head is better than zero <laughs> i would rather that just at least one person gets the idea that the of the outward mindset where my problem is i don't have enough ability skill control um, insight into who I'm dealing with in these other people. And if I could take, instead of just reacting to what they're doing to me, if I could actually turn it and go understand, go listen, go be impacted, then it would give me more and more power and more and more insight in how to create change and how to create a healthier life. Well, yeah, but what if the person's abusive? Right. If they're abusive, you got to be careful, but the principle still applies. If you're dealing with somebody that's abusive, it would be better that you pay attention and that you learn and you understand and you have an outward mindset instead of thinking their abuse is because of you. And then you go inward. I'm a loser. I'm no good. And then you shut yourself down and become something you're not. 
over and over, I've seen these principles applied in the couples I work with. And it's one of the hardest things you can do because a lot of times when you listen to this, it induces some guilt because you're thinking, I'm, I'm a loser. But the mere fact when you're, when you're starting to process the guilt, um, you're starting to turn inward, aren't you? And inward's fine, except it's not going to change the situation. It's not going to change the scenario. So the outward mindset might simply be, how do I start to take the values and the principles I believe in and implement them with others? How do I say that I want to be, you know, a loving, caring, amazing, wonderful husband, except I, I don't do that with my partner? And I, if I, what if I don't see my partner as a person? What if I don't understand their needs? When I work with my clients, so many times um, I'll have a part, one of the partners say, I know, I know, she's been complaining about that for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, so have you tried to understand it? Well, she makes no sense. Okay, but have you tried to understand it? Then all we have to do a lot of times is sit down and start to understand it. But there's this weird game that we play where we all of a sudden think, Our problem is our spouse or our problem is, um, you know, they don't hug enough. They don't touch enough. And that becomes the big problem. And as long as I'm fixated on that problem of my wife not doing this or my husband that always does this, that problem is outside of me. And I'm not going to start to do anything with it. Three basic principles, basic steps uh, seeing others, adjusting your efforts, and measuring your impact. It's called change, by the way. you got to change. Well, when, when are they going to change? You can't worry about when they're going to change. you got to change. Well, you make it sound so easy. I know. And you make it sound so complicated. It's human nature. If you're mad, don't assume you're mad because someone else is violating your life. Why don't you just assume you're violating some principle? That's why you're mad. If you weren't violating a principle, you probably wouldn't have a need to be mad. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You. You sitting there. You listening in your car, wherever you are. What? What's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, oh, just chasing you. If I just, I just got to do this one thing. If I, if once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I, uh, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You you can't fix certain things. A heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's it's a big deal, folks, and all of us are battling life. It's you know I don't ever want you to get depressed because of, we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know. If you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start. Doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense 
program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know, lose weight and start. You don't need to buy a scale. You don't need to do all that. Just whatever's on your list. I really need to call my kids, but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad. All right. So why do you keep being prompted to call your kids? I'm a big believer that uh, the answers are already in you. I don't – when I work and coach somebody, I don't need to to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows, but your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you – you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I, I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know. I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego, and our ego is like you got to beat everybody. you got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. Ugh. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure. If you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? Basic. So be careful. As we as we go through life, it's it's every one of us. We're chasing we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about. And we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time. We finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. Ugh, we've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? to become the change, a little bit of the change. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts. 
hundreds of them uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Life gives us a million things to do uh, at any given time, doesn't it? And with so much attention demanding, uh, or so many things demanding our attention, we can feel lost at times, overwhelmed or out of control. Mara Thomas is an award-winning speaker and author who wrote an article that shares the advice to control your life, control what you pay attention to. And uh, we're honored to have her on the show. Mara, thank you for your time and being with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I I love the idea that... um, Really, much of life is just being able to to focus your attention, and you'll get the most bang for the buck on whatever you pay attention to. Absolutely. we Our lives are dictated these days by distraction. By we, we react to everything. Most people tell me that they go to work and they do whatever happens to them. And as a result, we don't get enough of the things that matter to us done. And I believe that attention management is the solution. That's the key. Now, and, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things vying for our attention, but um, so, some of, I mean, some people it seems like struggle with attention and focus more than others. And um, so do they, do they really then have, are they at a deficit here? Well, I think that um, it, it is very difficult. I, I understand from psychiatrists that it is increasingly difficult to diagnose attention deficit disorder as a clinical case because everyone is showing symptoms, all busy professionals, let's say, perhaps not everyone, but and people out in the business world um, are super distracted and are showing symptoms of attention deficit disorder, but sometimes that's just situational. It's just environmental, and when we remove ourselves from that situation, then our symptoms go away as well, and so it's really difficult to tell um, which it is. Yeah. And so um, I guess part of this is uh, some of it might be a diagnosis, but even no matter what, it seems like gaining more and more skills, understanding how to focus our attention um, will help us in the end. Um, I I guess we we have taught ourselves a lot of ideas, and some of them, you tell me your take on them. I mean, multitasking, we talk about that. We talk about all these other things. Are, Are these... Is it real to multitask, or is this just just another idea of, you know, not being attentive to one thing? Oh, I mean, I think there are. Everybody has seen all the studies that show by now that multitasking is not helpful. But attention management, really, to me, it, it encompasses so much. I believe that we need to make a shift. We used to talk about the ability to achieve results in our lives, the ability to get more done, the ability to be productive. And to me, productive is, is about um, about achieving your significant results, leading a life of choice, being the kind of person you want to be. And the path to that used to be what we would call time management. And, and it encompassed all kinds of things, to a certain extent, managing distractions and also um, you know, prioritizing and calendarizing items and things like that. 
but that we've always known that we can't manage time. And so I think it's time to put a new frame around this idea of our ability to be productive to achieve our significant results. And so I call that attention management. And it really encompasses all um, sort of all of the aspects of, of that ability to live a life of choice. It is about controlling your distractions. It's about being present in your moments. Uh, so it encompasses mindfulness. It's about the ability to engage your flow because we know that flow is a documented psychological state where we maximize performance and achievement. It's the ability to really um, engage your your focus and uh, and and tune out distractions and really maximize your concentration. It's the ability to unleash your genius because all of the behaviors that we engage in, like multitasking and and constant distractions and reactivity, actually undermine our brain power and our ability to learn and be creative and solve problems. And ultimately, that all leads to our ability to achieve our significant results, to lead a life of choice, and to be the kind of people that we want to be. That's great. Is um, And what's cool is it's so based and steeped in a lot of the a lot of research as we go along, as you were just listing all of those. I'm like, holy cow, that's a whole research area. That's a whole research area. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, do you feel like maybe we are in a world, too, where we're trying to have it all? And... Um, and and is it possible to have it all when it comes really to attention management or do we really just need to kind of find what's the one thing, maybe the two things that we have to really focus our attention on and go after the fewer things instead of trying to do everything? Yeah, so that phrase, having it all, is a little bit to me like the the idea of balance, right? What, people talk about balance a lot today, too. We really have to define the terms, right? Because having it all might mean something completely different to one person than it does to another. So I, I think attention management is the ability to have it all because if we can't, if we can't do all those things, if we can't control our distractions and engage our flow and be present in our moments and, and maximize our focus and achieve our significant results, if we can't do all those things, then we miss those moments in our life. I believe that everyone has unique gifts to bring to the world, and so my job, I see my job as enabling them to bring those gifts in a way that energizes and inspires and motivates them instead of overwhelms and stresses and exhausts them. And I think that's where most people are today. So where's the best place to begin? Uh, give us some tools, some ideas for how we could, uh, where, first of all, where we should begin. I guess, do we start with distractions? Um, and, and what are some things that we can do today to begin to make this happen? Yeah, absolutely. So really, um, we have two types of um, distractions that we need to manage our attention around. We have external distractions and then we have internal distractions. So let's take the ex- external distractions for a minute because remember this is the path to productivity, living a life of choice, achieving our significant results. So in terms of the external distractions, I believe that the path begins with three steps. First, you have to control your environment. So a lot of us work in open office floor plans these days where it's really loud and it's chaotic and there's interruptions not only from our technology but from other people and everybody's talking and computer clicking and unwrapping things and and it's really just stressful. So we need to find a way to control our environment where 
we aren't slaves to our environment, if we put some boundaries around our environment, give our coworkers the message that we would prefer not to be interrupted, they will eventually get used to that and they will honor that as long as you honor that. Second step is we need to control our technology. So we all act as if we are slaves to our devices, but we never intended, I think we've forgotten as a society that our devices exist for our convenience. Not so anyone in the world can interrupt us all the time. And with more and more studies about persuasive technology and how it can manipulate our behavior, our only defense against that is our ability to control our technology, shutting it off, do not disturb, airplane mode, silent, not vibrate, shutting off the automatic download on our email, shutting off all the indicators, all the push notifications, not all the time every day, but taking control of that so that we can control our attention. And then the third step is, is in terms of the external distractions is to control our own behavior, and often that's the hardest part. But that's where mindfulness practices come in. That's where um, we recognize when we are allowing our attention to be stolen and when we're not controlling our technology, when we're not controlling our environment, because the more distracted we are, the more distracted we will be. Mm. And, th- and that undermines our uh, – it chips away at our attention span – and so our normal environments typically, our normal lives typically just undermine our productivity and our effectiveness. But we can begin to build up our focus again and to build up our attention span and to take control of all of those distractions. So those are the steps. Control your attention, control your, uh, sorry, control your environment, control your technology, control your own behavior. Those are the steps to external distractions. And- then we have... Oh, okay, I was just going to say, it just seems like um, how this would impact our psyche if we think that, yeah, I just I can't do what I meant to do. I'm, I mean, it's almost like we 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 fail to realize how much power we actually have over all of this. That it, it could it could really tip us over. Absolutely, and that's why I I teach a. Um, a, a methodology that is that is based in attention management. It's a path to productivity. I call it empowered productivity. And it's exactly what you said because we have forgotten. We need to take back our our power, our control. We need to recognize that we are not slaves to our technology. We are not slaves to our environment. Um, there was an article in a pay, in a in a big business paper once, and it was talking about this guy was talking about how he, in order to get anything done, he had to go up to his um, cabin in the Catskills where there was no internet access and really very little, um, you know, the, inter- the um, electricity was even spotty. And I, I thought to myself, you re- I can't, why do you think you have to do that? You can shut your internet right now, right here. You can <laughs> shut off your phones. You can, you have the power, but somehow we just, I don't know, maybe our willpower is depleted to such a point that we just can't do it anymore. Yeah, but, no, Totally. Talk about uh, the internal side of this. Internally, what do we do to um, be able to to control the distractions, the internal distractions? Yeah, so I think the biggest source of our internal distraction for most people is that we are running down our to-do list in our head all day long, (laughs) trying not to forget all the things that we need to do, trying to remember that we need to... Um, you know, make the phone call and fill out the expense report and we're out of milk and the kid's soccer game is at 4 o'clock and, the, and just all of that stuff that is swirling around in our head at any moment. And so I believe that the secret to that is, is to solving that problem is a workflow management process. 
because most people tell me that they, the way that they manage the details of the, their lives, the way they live um, that, that life of choice and be the kind of people that they want to be is some combination of managing all of those responsibilities with lists and sticky notes and remembering and flags in their email and dry erase boards and all of the in the notebook that they take to meetings and all of this combination of stuff and people tell me that they write things down to help them remember but the truth is if you have if you had a workflow management process something that wrangled all of those things in a way in a way that served it up to you when you needed it, that organized it and made it logical and easy to act upon, then the secret to a workflow management process is that you write it down so you don't have to remember. Mm. And that's a whole different perspective, and it changes those internal distractions and allows you to be your best self and do your best work and bring your gifts to the world. Do you write it down every day? Is it? Is it? I guess that's part of the workflow uh, process you have to create. Yeah, so so to me, it's it's. I use a puzzle analogy, right? If you were to do a puzzle, and the pieces were scattered all over the house, that wouldn't be an effective way to do the puzzle. And if you stop and think about why is that not an effective way to do the puzzle, right? You can't see the whole picture. It's ineffective to run back and forth. Each piece is out of context. It's hard to tell. Um, it's disorganized, you can't sort it, you can't organize it, you, you don't even know how big the puzzle is, mm. right? All of the same reasons that it's not a good idea to do a puzzle with the pieces scattered all over the house is the same reasons it's not a good idea to manage your work with some combination of sticky notes and lists and, and email and your brain and dry erase boards and all of these things. So the first step for a workflow management process is that you have to get everything in one place. And I believe that if you do a, a big um, sort of dump and you gather all of this stuff, you collect it all and you get everything out of your head, then really you don't have to write it down every day. You just have to – you do it once and yeah. then you add things You add things as they come to you and as they happen to you. But, but your things are organized in a way instead of you, you've got one long list on a piece of paper. When something new comes up, the only place to write it is the bottom of the list. Yeah. But then you realize, well, it's more important than the bottom of the list. So that's when you start in with the arrows and the stars in the highlighters on your pad of paper, right? Yeah, and yeah. then you're like, oh, this is a mess. I better start over. I better, I better rewrite my list. And so then it just spirals from there. So it's having so a way true. to manage all of that is uh, and, and, Well, and then there's old school and there's new school, right? There's, there's all – we have all this activity on our data and our – I mean on our tools, our phones, our um, laptops, our computers – but then we also like I'm person I'm a person that loves writing. I'm a person that loves seeing my handwriting and paper and so yeah, then now all of a sudden I'm using two systems and uh boy, it really is it's something we need to probably become very intentional about. Yeah, so I got a, I've got another analogy for you, right? So the 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 formula for productivity is not that different than the formula for sports. Let's take golf for example. If you had the best set of golf clubs, if you had the same set of golf clubs that your favorite PGA pro plays with, it doesn't make you a PGA pro. Right, right. right. And, it, and if the PGA pro goes into the local Goodwill and buys whatever used club happens to be for sale at Goodwill that day and then attempts to play the Masters with that club, you're likely to bet against them to win the Masters that year. 
So the formula for a great game of golf, or to be great at any sports, is both the methodology, the know-how, plus the tools. And it's the same is true for productivity. I think we have all of the best tools available to us that have ever been created in the history of civilization, right? We've got tablets and, and yeah. laptops and powerful computers and apps and software and all this stuff. But without the methodology to use them properly, it doesn't make us a productivity pro the same way it wouldn't make us a golf pro. So true. So true. Um, Again, we're speaking with Mara Thomas, who is the author of two books, Personal Productivity Secrets and Work Without Walls. Uh, Also, you can go to her website, marathomas.com, to get more information. And Mara, as as we're kind of winding this up, I, I think we live in a day and age where if there's ever been a time where we need to get um, some attention management in our children, in our families, it's today. How would you suggest we we address our families and, and try to improve attention management with our kids and our families? Yeah, it, it absolutely starts um, at a young age. I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, and I would never, you know, try to advise people on how to best raise their kids. But their world is getting more and more complicated, more and more distracted. And so I think really helping them understand that all of these things are in their control. Now, the power, the problem with kids is that they want it, right? They don't want to be away from their devices. They don't remember what it, you know, they don't have any frame of reference for what it was like before, uh, you know, before we had the Internet in our pocket, in our smartphones, right? right? So I think teaching them, um, leading by example is the biggest, uh, the biggest solution, and really that goes not only for for our kids and our families, but really in business, which is my area of expertise. If the leader isn't present, if the leader um, isn't exhibiting attention management, if the leader, sometimes the leader in the organization or the leadership in the organization is the biggest impediment to the team's productivity. That's why I wrote Work Without Walls, because the leadership behaviors have a huge impact on the productivity of the team. And it's one thing to to learn attention management and workflow management practices, but if you work in a company that just doesn't allow you the opportunity to say, you know, close out your email occasionally so that you can focus on other things. Or, you know, you've, you've got this crazy loud environment or your dro- your boss is dropping in on you every two minutes, you know. Yeah. Hey, I need to talk to you about that. And can you think, because everybody's going to drop everything for the boss. So you need to model, whether you're a parent or a leader or both, right? You need to, le- you need to model the behaviors that you want to see in the people who interact with you. Yeah, no, great stuff. Mara Thomas, thank you so much for your time and uh, your insights. Again, you can go to marathomas.com to find out more about her work, her her insights there, as well as her training opportunities and more about her empowered productivity uh, concepts. Um, Really, the more we understand how to to be attentive and in the space and in the presence, uh, the more we can actually maximize our output and our our flow. Powerful stuff based in a lot of pretty awesome research as well. We'll continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Um... 
Yeah, when we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify too what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, it, it was an interesting find. I, I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is uh, the word priority is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities, and we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live what would eventually what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now let's let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority really? What's going to be the key that that report to your boss, you got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. Two weeks of your life, what is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours— is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention even higher but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential? 
right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just, our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And, you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually – because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are What is your top priority, singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority your number one thing. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing the thing we can to help you be the best that you can be. Up next, we'll be talking about how to complain so that people will listen. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. And no matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. So how do we complain so that people will actually listen? How do we share our point of view so that people will hear it? Uh, Well, uh, we had interviewed Tina Gilbertson, who's a psychotherapist in a private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of the book Constructive Wallowing. How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago, and we talked about uh, some innovative ideas for how to complain so that people will listen. We started the interview with me asking, you know, we have some the power to heal, but it comes from listening, right? Yeah, and, and the trick is to hear the emotional need behind what they're saying. Yeah, it really is, because underlying all the emotion, there's a pain, mm-hmm. and the pain needs to be at least dealt with. I call the emotion the vital signs. You see signs of pain, and we use those signs to get down to the deeper issue. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. It can be tough if if you're not used to looking for those needs because people. it's easy to get caught up in the content. Yeah. Yeah, like I I did not say that in the meeting. I said this, and now we're arguing about the content instead of my emotion here, the issue. Is the most common response to a complaint is, no, it wasn't. No, I didn't. No, mm. that's not how it was. 
and mo- it's, then we get caught up in this thing that no one can can win, and then the emotional need is sitting there going, hello? <laughs> what about me? Hello? What about me? Yeah. So um, let's just look at an example of something that might be a complaint. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, she was talking about a relative who's, she said, is really negative, is always down on And I said, well, what kind of, what kind of complaints are we talking about? What are, give me an example. And it was, she will say things like, oh, these two friends of mine are so um, passive aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. they never, they never, they never let, they're so, they never let me in on anything. And so she's complaining about the behavior of these two friends. And it really had a big, strong theme to me of she feels left out. Yeah. She's mad at them for, for helping her feel left out. So the, the response to that, and, and the reason we were talking about this um, is that uh, the person I was talking to didn't want to absorb all that negativity. Right. Really weighed down by it and just wanted her to shut up because she couldn't take all the complaining. Um, and you said earlier about, a, you mentioned the word boundary. Yeah, some yeah, so I, yeah, a boundary or like a rule, yeah. Yeah, and that this can be really helpful to the person who's complaining is, and help you at the same time. You can actually draw a boundary by holding up a mirror to them. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, let's say she's complaining about these two friends who never let her in on anything. It's really simple. You just say, it sounds like you feel kind of left out. Which is just holding, it's like the mirror. You're just holding up what you hear her saying. Right. And so you you don't need to take it all in. You don't need to absorb all of it and be angry about it. You just kind of reflect back what you hear her saying. Right. And that and you may feel like she's frustrated with that response because what she wants is to unload her feelings onto you. She doesn't know what to do with them. Right, right. That's but huge. When you, when you don't let her unload her feelings onto you, you're helping you both at the same time. You're preserving your boundary. You know, that's not mine. That's not my, my pain. Mm-hmm. But you're also holding up that mirror and saying, well, here's what it sounds like you feel. And people who are really out of touch with their feelings may be like, what? I don't even get it. What do you mean? No, I don't feel left out. What are you talking about? That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're not right. Right. And then what, what's interesting is if you can hold your space there and not attack but, and understand it and search it and try to, and try to get to the deeper need, yeah. then they can trust you. And you're also going to eliminate some of the emotion. Right. And, and uh, yes, and another step you can take after you've said, well, it sounds like you feel really left out, is to offer that validation of that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. That sounds painful. No wonder you're upset. Yeah. Instead of trying to fix it or... Yeah. Argue. Yeah. So if I bring up my ideas, my issues, my points, I'm just going to further the fight. You're kind of every one of the things you're teaching us is to get into them. Just stay it's with them. Stuff. It's their stuff. But of course, that's hard if they're complaining about you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Or your mother. It's yeah. even harder. Right. <laughs> that's why mom yeah. always gets thrown in there, huh? Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it's that's isn't it really the most basic human need, Tina? Is just to have somebody care enough to want to understand. Oh man, I I second that so strongly. Yeah, I think it is a very basic human need to, uh, for just compassion and understanding. Hmm. You just need another. I think that that's the the secret to um, therapy. Yeah. Ultimately, just very essentially. To be seen and witnessed by a compassionate other human being who accepts you for whatever is going on with you in that moment, I think that's the biggest part of healing. 
Yeah. You know, people talk about talk therapy and they say, well, is it really therapeutic just to talk and hear yourself talk and talk about your feelings? No, it's not the talk that helps. That's why you can talk all day about (laughs) how you feel and not feel better. It is how that's received. And and having somebody accept you as just what you are. Yeah. No judgment. Yeah, that's huge. That is huge. We're we're all so busy. It's hard for us to remember to do that for others. Yeah. And that's the healing. That's the healing. So so if somebody's bringing you a complaint, don't think of it as a chance that you're going to get beat up. You could just see this as a chance to create some healing, help somebody, help understand somebody. I mean, I mean you can also eventually share your side some other in some other moment when the emotion's right and the timing's right. That's it. But right now I need to understand you because you're the one that has the pain. Yeah, that's it. But it's so hard not, no, not to totally. get defensive. Yeah. When people are complaining in a way that is not... They're not making I statements. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone says to you, Matt, you know, you, I can't believe you said that to me. How, how inappropriate and yeah. hurtful. You're such it's, a jerk, right? You're such a jerk. I mean, of course you're going to feel defensive. This is why it's such a tough nut because where do you, where do you intervene? Where do you start? Yeah. When, the, when the complaint is more, feels more like an attack, it's because it's not worded well. Right. And then when you've received a complaint that's worded like an attack, it's a lot of work to try to un- untangle yourself from your own defenses and yeah. say, wow, it sounds like I really hurt you. I'm really sorry about that. That's so true. One of our last guests said, listening is the mother of all skills. It is the number one skill all humans need to have, and yet it's the one that still eludes us because our emotions get so caught up into it. Yeah, we're so into our own emotions and our own needs. We forget, even to, with people we love. Yeah. Well, as we wrap this up, Tina, give us, we have about 20 seconds. What would you say is the one key of everything we've talked about, the one thing that we need to remember when it comes to complaints and validation? With complaints, own it. It's your complaint. Own your feelings. And with validation, you don't have to agree to validate. Mm. You just need to see their point of view. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And just because I just because I do understand you doesn't mean I agree either. Right. Yeah, that's but cool. I, I want you to know I understand. If, if I were you, I'd probably feel the same way in your shoes. Good stuff. Again, that's Tina Gilbertson, uh, uh, the author of the book Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. And uh, just great insight, I think, for all of us to understand it's we have to communicate. In the end, it's going to be through communication that we not only understand each other, but that we change the meaning in life and make life better. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great 
when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he cannot run the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500 a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play. And uh, my wife so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Ah, oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Oh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and 
Let them be them. As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever or being the best piano player or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was a, the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees – that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives, and now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win, right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives, don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles. And I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just 
tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you, you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the, the, the voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on health care that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? Because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a – out, you know, all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps, and you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting, you know, political arguments, or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. <laughs> ben loves a good pile on. Um, you don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, Donald Trump, I think even Hillary Clinton, this whole idea of emotional intelligence, to be a leader, you have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that, that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders, um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have 
emotional intelligence. That they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a – I'll create a reaction. But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain in certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton um, went and hid emails because she's it, she it created fear. It she's been in the spotlight forever. The media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton, and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own. Nonetheless, people don't trust her because of that. Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels, and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him, he reacts and crushes you, thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is, deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to, to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe— and if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? And it might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. It's that time, folks. Dr. Brian Willoughby is with us. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. He also uh, has research focuses where uh, his research ends up focusing on young adult dating, relationship patterns, as well as uh, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation. He's the author, co-author of the book, The Marriage Paradox, and he's just about to uh, start finals with his students here on campus. Time to start the pain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is where this is where we see how good of a teacher you are. That's right. But it's easy, right? I mean, yeah. they'll do it. It's fine. Yeah, it's easy for me. I just have to give the test. Yeah, I have to take, and then I have to grade it. But and then, do you actually sit and grade every test, um, or do you have your TAs do that? One of my classes, I have TAs. One of my classes, my upper division class, I grade. You grade because yeah. you've got a, and it's a smaller class. Smaller class. Yeah, forty students. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
Oh, the life of a professor. Yeah, it's rough. So cushy, and then you go get another su- – how many? You get like three or four sweaters a year. Yep, yep. You got to have your, ups, <laughs> your Some ups. polos. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you today about an article you wrote about why relationships are like working out. Yeah. It's a pretty cool metaphor. It is. It works actually really well. So we need – you. you're really saying we need to be buffed and ripped like <laughs> – um, like kind of a somebody that goes to the gym regularly. Right. And the key is how do you get that way? Yeah. How do you get – now, because it's uh, – well, maybe just teach us the metaphor. Right. So so the idea when you're working out, right, is that you've you got to kind of break down your muscles. you got to tear the muscle tissue a little bit. Yeah. That's what you're doing when you're working out and, and, and lifting weights. And the idea is that as your muscles then repair themselves, they get stronger. Yeah. Right? You've broken them down a little bit. They they the, Your body responds by getting, getting stronger. stronger. So you get – Harder and harder or heavier, heavier weights. Keep doing that process. That's how you build muscle. The idea in a relationship is that unlike most of our perspective, which is, well, we just wanted to be happy right away. Yeah. And then it gets it goes from a 10 to an 11 to yeah. a 12 over time. Healthy relationships are the same way, is that they have to overcome small stressors to stress, stretch themselves, tear themselves maybe a little bit. But through that process, they can get stronger too. But do we – it seems like a lot of us think we we shouldn't have stressors. Right. Yeah, we think that way, but that's not true, not reality it's, it's in not, any way. It's not really how it works. Right. I mean, so is it true then the the more stressful the marriage, the more problems you've had, the better – I mean if you respond to it and use it to get stronger, it, right. you should be in better shape. Right. That's the idea. That, that stress is actually we, – we feel stress whenever there's change. So so this isn't about like having major marital problems. Yeah. It's about a marriage that encounters change, which every marriage does. Yeah. So every marriage is going to deal with stress. And so how do we build off it? That's the idea. What, what, I, what I tell my students a lot is that you want to get past the hurdle metaphor that we have sometimes, which is there's hurdles in the way and you jump over them and you get back on the track and yeah. you keep going. Yeah. Right? This is much more of a we take these opportunities to break things down and grow stronger. Again, like the muscles. Yeah. We, we want to get better when we go through these stressors, not just get back to where things were. Which is why I guess we, we don't want to avoid because some people just have a conflict avoidance tendency. So if right. you avoid the conflict mm-hmm. or if you overlive. If you do it too hard, right, you'll either get you'll damage yourself or you'll never grow. Right, that's the other part of the metaphor. Right, is you don't jump into the gym the first day, and say I'm going to go bench press 300 and squat 400, <laughs> right? Pick up those 75 pound yeah. bar and start. And How start hard could this doing be? Some presses. You don't do that, right? You're going to injure yourself. Same thing in a relationship is that, and this is actually a, a, a tie to dating a little bit, is that a lot of people say. Well, this guy, I've been, you know, I want. I'm thinking about dating him, and you know, he's in the middle of dealing with some major depression and right. some major addiction stuff. It's like that, that, that's when maybe there's too much stress early in the relationship. Is that you? Hopefully, you're dating someone that's relatively healthy. You're getting married. You're in a relationship. You're going through these small stressors. Things like who's going to do the dishes. Who who's who's going to take out the trash? How are we going to deal with you know you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat? Right. These right. little things that we need to take head on, like you said, not avoid. Build a relationship strength so that down the road when I just lost my job or we're transitioning to parenthood or we're dealing with something more major, we've built up the strength that we need in the relationship to lift that 75-pound weight. Yeah. That's um, that's actually it's such a good metaphor because it's so different too than you marry the perfect body. Right. You're saying we've got to actually go co-create it. Right. Yeah, I was I was I was working with a group a couple weeks ago, and I was drawing on the board and trying to explain this principle, and 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 I was drawing kind of a, a pyramid and said our, our perception of relationships right now is that you you get a good education, you 
become a good person, you become mature, and then yeah. you kind of build all these layers. And then at the very tippy top, you find someone else that's built all the layers, yeah. and then you marry. Yeah, it's and like then the it's the perfect yeah. little cherry on top. And I, I erased all that, and I, I built the bottom layer again and said, what if you started down here with someone? And you build the layers of the pyramid together oh, instead of cool. just one by one. And yeah. that's the idea is that you're building towards something together yeah. because that's where that strength is going to come from. Yeah. And I guess that's why – I mean because a lot of us – and you hear more and more people waiting to marry until everything's lined up. Right. But there is so much benefit to going through a lot of that together. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, what, that's what forms core commitment. That's what forms the foundation that healthy relationships need. Yeah. Um, but implicit in your model here of exercise, physiology, matching, relationship growth is there's going to inher- be inherent discomfort – and it's exhausting. Right. Exercising is hard and it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- this, this is the scary reality I tell people a lot about relationships is that it does take work. It yeah. takes effort. And just like the gym, right, we go for the first time and we come home after the first time and we hurt. And we maybe hurt for a couple days afterwards. Like, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> right. But but any person that, that is, is fit will tell you, it's like, you got to keep with it. Right. You got to keep doing it. It gets better. You start to feel stronger. You start to feel better. It's the same thing in a relationship is that it's it's easy sometimes to avoid those small conflicts. Well, I don't want to fight with you. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But then we're missing those growth opportunities. We're missing those opportunities. And it is get tiring. It does get exhausting. It does mean that sometimes when I'd rather be watching a movie or be with my friends or just reading a book that I have to engage with my partner. But that's it's it's kind of to another metaphor. It's an investment metaphor is that you're putting investments in so that inevitably in your life when you have those big issues come up, you're ready for them. Well, and it seems like little issues won't even seem like a big deal because you'll you're going to be so much stronger than the issue ever could be. You know, you're going to be you're going to be at a whole other level. So if I if I can lift 100 pounds pretty easily, then. I could easily handle 100-pound issues every day, right. and it's not a big issue. Right. But then, then I then I guess I, I don't need to go looking for the 150-pound issues. Right. But if they come, I'm I'm on my way. Yeah, and and that's the healthiest couples, their mindset is, again, they're not looking for the big stressors, yeah. not looking for the big things, but they don't feel scared or overwhelmed by them, mm-hmm. right? They, they feel like, hey, we've done, we've done this for 10 years. We've done this for 15 years. We've gotten through this, this, and this. We can do this together. Yeah. And that, that mindset is actually in, – in stress theory, there's two big parts to to overcoming anything, which is perception and resources. And that perception that can build in a relationship over years is so important. We can do this. Oh, we yeah. can do this together. Oh, I never thought of that. The, yeah. the Just the idea that you you can handle this. What's, right. what's the big deal? Right. And then um, – yeah, it's not like you need to go create bigger problems, but life's going to give you enough. So, what what are the exercises that you see as a professional that would that do the best strengthening for the relationship? Yeah. So, so one of the the good things that couples can do is actually identify disagreement and talk about it, like about really small yeah, stuff. Handle it. Yeah, that's one of the things that couples like to kind of in like little stuff. Like, what did you think about the movie? Oh, I didn't like it. Oh, okay, I won't. Talk Whoa. about that anymore, right? Jeez. It's like, oh, really? Why? Yeah. Right? Is is find those little moments where you disagree about movies, TV, yeah. something in the news, something small, and engage with it and talk about it, learn about why you disagree with it. Stay in right? it. Stay in that kind of moment and, and build those resources to talk through. And, and it's easy in those little things at the end of the day. Yeah. You can say, matter. okay, well, we don't, we don't, it doesn't matter. We, it doesn't matter if we agree on that movie. 
but we're building that that mentality of we work through these types mm-hmm. of things. That that can be really really helpful. The other thing that can be really helpful in terms of small exercise when the slightly bigger things come up, right? Maybe it's about money, maybe it's about our kids, maybe it's about intimacy is scheduling time to talk about that. Yeah. Right? So we're going to be in, engaged in the process. This is along the lines of what we call proactive coping. Let's sit down and talk about this. Hey, Saturday night, we're going to sit down and talk about the money. And we're going to engage in that process a little bit more. And don't do it in the moment when we're maybe a little heated and arguing, but we're going to schedule time when we're going to talk through that. That's cool. You do those type of things. Again, you're building this pattern of we talk, we're open, we're vulnerable, we we try to compromise. When the bigger issues come, you'll have those resources. It seems like, yeah, you need to also know how to do it. Because if you – like I I had a television shoot once where I went to a gym with a television crew and I was starting an exercise plan. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like the worst experience of my life. I had a chest cold. I couldn't breathe. The lady just killed me on air. And um, but I didn't know what I was doing. So everything was complicated. And I thought, man, if I had if I had been doing this for six months, that would have been a no brainer with a chest cold. Right. I just would have known what I could do and what I couldn't do. So some of, I guess, the, the idea of talking about tough stuff. If it scares you to death, it just means you've got to go practice it more. Yeah. And and the other part of this, going back to the metaphor, is that what does any good person do, hopefully, when they go to the gym? And what is a personal trainer going to set up with you? Yeah. Goals. A plan, yeah. Right? What what is the weight loss goal? What is the lifting goal? Same thing is in – very few relationships do this, is sit down and say, what are our goals? Yeah. Like, where do we want to be? We do this with money. We do this with education, with our kids. But how many couples sit down and say, where do we want to be in five years? Yeah, because that would determine what plan or regimen we need to follow. Right. Yeah. What, what are some of the specific things we want to work on? Like, hey, we've, in five years, we've decided we, we, we really want to be better about not bickering with each other about the kids. Yeah. Okay, well, now every time we notice that there's a little disagreement with the kids, even if it's about like what goes in their lunch that day, yeah. let's, let's make sure we identify, like, oh, there's a kid issue. Let's it's talk so- about it. It's so true. I and I see that with clients that I've worked with where you I mean they like I've walked up to clients and in my head I'm like you're still married? Like right. that's amazing, but they're really strong. Mm-hmm. They've they've learned because they had the crud beat out of them 10 years ago right. that now they they have got goals. They do have a regimen. They do have patterns and habits. I guess some of this too is about Practice. This isn't something we do once. You can't just go get fit by going to the gym once. Right. You got to do this daily. Yeah, you do it over and over again. And then the nice thing, because sometimes when we talk about this type of thing, people sit and say, well, this is why I'm single. This is why I don't want to get married. This is way too much work, (laughs) right? Is that just like exercising, it gets easier over time and in in some ways enjoyable over time, right? Is is that you do the practice, you stay consistent. And the, everything t- tends to get easier. Even when you get sometimes to the harder things, it doesn't feel like this is weighing our relationship down. Yeah, right. it's hard. We wouldn't pick it. But it feels like, hey, this is actually a great opportunity for us to even get stronger. It's so true. Do you sense um, – again, by the way, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. You can go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com to get more information about his books and, and his work and speaking and everything that he does. Um, that's interesting that uh, does a single person get the same workout dating multiple people mm-hmm. that a married person would get working out with one person in the relationship? Um in some ways, yes. So you can certainly get experience with conflict resolution, with communication skills, with all those other things. Um, but one of the interesting things we see in the research is that 
there's starting to be a lot of research coming out because we see more and more of this in the 20s, right? right. Serial monogamy, right. in and out of committed relationships, is that one of the other things I am training myself to do is that once things get hard, I leave, Yeah. right? Well, we had this big fight and I broke up with my girlfriend or I had a big, this issue yeah. came up and she broke up with me, right? Is I'm learning over time that when when I can't quite get that weight up, I put it down and I go find a different Next. weight. Yeah, a, d- yeah. a different exercise yeah. machine yeah. that I think works a little bit Less better. Less impactful. Yeah. And it's it's hard to get past that mentality when we decide to actually commit. And so yeah. that's, that's actually one of the concerns relationship scholars have now with our relationship trajectories is that we've got a lot of people that aren't getting married until they had five, six, seven long-term committed relationships. And the, and then, like I said, that mentality that you've trained yourself for is kind of hard. Yeah, this isn't permanent. I right. can get out anytime I need to get out, right. anytime it mm-hmm. gets hard. So we need to practice. We need to understand there's going to be discomfort and fatigue. It is a building process. And I guess the thing about it I've noticed um, with relationship or with real exercise is if you, you know, once you've built a certain physique, you just can't stop. Right. The minute you stop, you get flabby. Yep. Is yep. that true in a relationship? It is. Yeah. Relationships can have apathy just like muscles can have apathy. Is that if you're not consistently dedicating time and resources to your relationship, it can it can weaken. And, and a very common point for that for a lot of people is when they have kids. And yeah. it's really easy to have the the parenting aspect of the relationship overtake it. And forget about the romantic part right. of the relationship, the marriage part of the relationship. And so it's really important for healthy couples to say, we need a maintenance routine. We need to date each other every week. We need to have time alone to do things together to maintain that relationship. That's a, It's a great way to look at it, like a maintenance routine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be that somebody is in the middle of finals or their dissertation, mm-hmm. and it's it's going to be six months of very limited time together. Right. But that might just mean, okay, then how do we maintain right. a healthy connection yep. without over over expectations or over or under, you know, yeah. delivering? And, and again, back to weightlifting is that as I realized, okay, I had this five month stretch where I was trying to maintain, but I lost a little bit of muscle mass. Mm-hmm. What I need to do? Rededicate myself. Okay, the next three months I got to build that back. Come up. back and so, okay. I was I was really busy at work this month. Next month I need to make extra special time for my relationship. Um, what do you do? Because one of the things I do see, too, happening, and I don't know if it's generational. I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a generational focus more on independence. So mm-hmm. some of what we're growing here is a unified, shared relationship, right. which would kind of demand we're both doing it, mm-hmm. versus just two fit beings that are independent and not necessarily needing each other. How do you balance independence Versus interdependence. Yeah. So so first, what I say is that if your goal is a long-term committed marriage, then you always lean towards interdependence yeah. and not independence. Because you do. We, it is a generational thing we see with millennials and in that generation that there's much more of a tendency to live parallel lives, right? We both have right. our jobs. We both have our hobbies. We both have our friends. We're both strong independently. We're both strong independent people. But over time, it's really hard to maintain that, right? Because there's always yeah. going to be conflict between those two parallel lives. It, it counter, it contradicts that uh, visual I talked about before, which is you've built something together. You yeah. have shared goals. You have a shared vision of, of what you're doing. Um, and so so I, I, I always say lean towards interdependence. But at the same time, you do want to make sure you do have some independence, that there's not codependency yeah. or dependency in the relationship. Right. And the best way to to kind of, assess that in a relationship is to ask yourself a question. Do I feel comfortable making my own decisions? If my partner's not there, can I handle it? Can I handle it? Can I take the kids here? Can I drive here? Can I make this call? 
If you can do that, you're fine. If not, then maybe you need to talk as a relationship about, okay, how can we make sure that we have a little bit of autonomy yeah. in this? And, and, and again, you can work on that together. Even though it's about independence, totally. you can support each other and say, okay, yeah, I, I realize I've been taking all the financial stuff and you feel kind of disengaged. Let's, hey, this part and this part and this part, we're going to have you kind of take over. Let's and rotate I'm willing roles. to help. I'm right. willing to mentor you and support you. But I want you to feel a little bit more of the independence. It's almost like when you're exercising, you might exercise more of your right side than your left side, but that's probably not healthy. Like you need balanced core and balanced Mm -hmm. life. So make sure – I mean you could proactively see that we're kind of growing out of balance. Right. Where one person doesn't know how to do the other stuff, right? It's it's like, oh, you're you're doing the biceps, so I'll yeah. just I'll just do that. I'll do yeah. the legs. You do your the legs bicep. are huge, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you don't want to do that again. Each you want to make sure you're a good independent uh, person that can can have have confidence in yourself. Yeah, um, is there any sign? Can you just like you can in exercise? Can you overdo relationship workout? Can you can you be doing too much on the relationship that you actually hinder it? Yeah, relationship workout fatigue. Yeah, burnout. Yeah, yeah. potentially. Yeah, and part of that you'd see um, the other areas of your life kind of suffer a little bit, right? So right. if I find myself that I'm so preoccupied with my relationship that I can't concentrate at work, that I can't sleep very well, that you know where our kids are kind of getting in trouble because they're not getting enough time, you know, you, you can you'll see those signs probably in the other areas of your life. Hmm. Your relationship probably won't suffer because it's getting. Right. Lots it's getting of a lot of attention. But if you sense that kind of imbalance, then it might be time, like like we were saying in the other direction, it's like, okay, not that I'm dismissing my relationship, but I'm, I'm starting to struggle at work or at school a little bit. And we need to say, and again, you work together yeah. and you say, how do we re reshuffle things a little bit? That's good stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby's his name. Again, go to his website, drbrianwillaby.com, drbrianwillaby.com to get more information about uh, his writings as well as um, his uh, book that he released uh, last year, The Marriage Paradox. You're not going to want to miss it. He's the man, the myth, the legend, and he'll uh, keep your love strong and fit and ripped with abs to spare. Dr. Brian, thank you so much, and we'll continue the journey, do a little uh, empty news straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, as you know, we like to we always like to give you the latest uh, in the empty news headlines, and um, this is a there's, there's just a bunch of crazy stories. If we've told you once, we've told you a hundred times. If you are going to involve yourself in a high speed chase or a low speed chase, make sure you've got the car loaded up with gas. Police say a U-Haul van driver led them on a twenty mile interstate chase in New Hampshire that ended when the vehicle ran out of gas. Duh. They arrested 52-year-old Edward Alexander of Newark, New Jersey, late Wednesday. He faced arraignment on uh, counts of reckless conduct, disobeying a police officer, and drunken driving. It wasn't immediately known if he had a lawyer, but uh, state police said an officer approached the van in Salem. The driver appeared to be passed out. As the officer got closer, the van took off, nearly hitting him. Police pursued the van on Interstates 93 and 293 to Manchester, they said the driver threw a, a bunch of credit cards out of the window during the chase, and the ran uh, the van ran out of gas on a ramp. Rough. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man. Think ahead. Just want to know if he was like throwing out the credit cards to try and distract the police. <laughs> That's it. 
destroy the evidence. Oh, look at the credit cards. They might be stolen. Pull over, Reduce please. the weight of his vehicle because he doesn't have any gas. Uh, we were talking about earlier um, a news story where a train loaded with human waste Oof. has now been Oof. stranded in um, Alabama because of a scheduling issue. So it really is messing up a town because it smells. <laughs> Yeah, somebody needs to flush it. Well, uh, be careful what you call your hometown, though, because an Iowa man had to was taken to court over a lawsuit for calling his hometown smelly. An Iowa man threatened by city officials with legal action for saying on a website that his hometown smelled like a rancid dog smelled like rancid dog food. He won a free speech lawsuit Thursday when the federal judge prohibited the city and further from further threats and awarded him damages. Josh Harms, by the way, this is his name, represented by the ACLU of Iowa, filed the suit in U.S. District Court earlier this month asking a judge to block Sibley officials from suing him. City officials said they'd sue if he didn't stop criticizing the town's odor problem from Iowa drying and processing. I guess that's a company that uh, makes high-protein animal food supplements from pig blood. Just of all the things you could say, I mean, mean, you could say some pretty horrible things. I just... But just don't They're call him over smelly. calling him smelly. But I mean, I I've been next to a business that processes, you know, pig blood, Ooh. not actually other animal waste, and they stink. But just you, you you know, this the city was saying don't call it that or we're going to take you to court. Well, they lost. Apparently the first amendment Thank still goodness. still works. In December, the city's attorney, Daniel DeCotter, uh, sends Harms a letter saying that he was hurting the community with his website and threatened a lawsuit if he didn't stop. Judge Leonard Strand approved on Thursday's permanent injunction agreed to by the city and Harms. The injunction prohibits the city from making further threats. Now, take care of that. It allows Harms to talk to reporters and continue to publish websites critical of the city odor issue. Maybe what we should do is spend all of that same money... To uh, to just take care of the odor issue. Febreze. <laughs> Bring in like, you know, uh, train loads of Febreze. There we go. You can't go wrong there. How come those are the trains that never get stuck anywhere? I know. That's, that it's Febreze train human needs waste to be train. somehow. <laughs> Wasn't that human waste train? Wasn't that a song in the 70s? Oh, man. You're asking the wrong person. It's probably a different. It was a, probably a different. I'll bet it's coming out soon, though. You know, they come oh, yeah. back. Oh, yeah. Uh, Minnesota Firehouse. Listen to this. Fire, uh, firefighters came to the rescue for a group of Minnesota high school students. When, uh, By the way, this is Becca's hometown, probably. This is? Near her hometown. Uh, a blizzard struck during their prom, and the Forest Lake Fire Department opened its firehouse for three hours on Saturday so the students could pose for prom pictures. Because they didn't have anywhere to go to have their pictures taken. With, uh, you know, 15 inches of snow out in the... In the streets, they didn't have anywhere to go. So they went to uh, the fire station. They're calling it hashtag blizzard prom. The students posed in their formal clothes on fire trucks and firehouses. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. I think that's really cool. They just stepped up, saw a need, and then said, come on over here. That's so Minnesota. That is so Minnesota. Oh, come on over here, don't you know? Got a little firehouse over here, a little hot dish for you. Can warm your toes while you take your little prom photos, don't you? Don't you know? That's it. It's like you live there. It's like it's like you grew up there. I I did, yeah. You you've got the accent down perfect, but when you talk, I might even have my own prom photos from a, fire. a firehouse, yeah. Do you? No, I don't. Okay. Wish I did. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to touch a nerve. 
No, well, yeah, they probably would have been. They probably would have looked better if they had been in a firehouse. I think we all have those like really embarrassing oh. prom photos from way back when. I ruined more prom photos. I really did. I hated. I mean, I, as as photographic as I am, and you know, as as good as I look on film, I ruined a lot of pictures. That's what you got to do. It's like paying your dues. It's a rite of passage. That's right. Well, and I ruin just, a few prom photos, and then I don't know what it is. I just don't like pictures. My wife loves them. She takes them everywhere we go. Really? If, if it weren't for her, I I don't know what we'd be doing because I wouldn't be taking any of them. <laughs> this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city 
difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, And if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if, if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is... Um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. (laughs) Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion, but at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities 
to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's you know pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned and you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal 
and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it, but I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you, you know, insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're gonna you know invoke. God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. <laughs> 